Okay, there are readers and there are listeners in this world, and this is for the listeners. It is May 19th, at least where we are today in Abu Dhabi together, and it's the audio edition of the Red Blue Newsletter. Okay, so we have several different discussions in this newsletter. Just as like a piece of background, what we're trying to do is explain the news that's happening and not just share that news. And so part of this discussion is also to go a little bit deeper uh, on some of the things we raise in the newsletter. You can probably find better sources or better informed people to tell you all the reasons the tech market is doing badly. Netflix is down 69% and that's just the bellwether for the overall market. Just as an aggregator stock, uh, SKYU is down like 60% and that's incorporating a lot of different tech companies that are getting hammered on the stock market. I think what's more interesting is what this means for our industry, for mobility companies. And it's crazy because some of the worst areas have been all these SPAC companies, which is closer to home for us since you've been looking at number of opportunities. We, some of the companies we invested in have actually gone public via SPAC. So we've been part of discussions with companies, whether they were going public or thinking about going public, like how to think about it. Because for people who've been deep in the space for some time, I think when this all happened, it was like this crazy wave of capital coming in. Great opportunity for investors to get liquidity, but not. it didn't feel structurally good. Like sustainable at all. It didn't say it yeah. feel sustainable because these companies weren't necessarily worth what they were being priced at in order to go public. And then you had all these SPACs that were suddenly getting raised. And then this whole glut of capital, one can say late in the investment cycle, people are reaching for opportunities that don't necessarily make sense, hoping for upside that isn't necessarily there. There's this lost trust on the market. If you went public via SPAC, you get a double look. You don't get the benefit of the doubt anymore. And I think that's been really challenging for the segment. And it's reflected both in the aggregate of, of SPACs. I think 70, 75 of them are down significantly, like 60%. And then specifically in Israel, I live in Tel Aviv and been very involved in the, the tech ecosystem in, in Israel. A lot of the companies that went public via SPAC in Israel are trading at zero enterprise value. Basically, the cash in their bank account is what the public market is valuing. Sometimes below cash. Yeah. Which is great. Sometimes they have debt, so that's also... But, like, that's really crazy when companies that have actual businesses to some extent are being valued at basically zero. And I think a lot of people, maybe slightly outside of the investing space, look at what's happened, and they'll ask questions like, did you guys see this coming? Didn't you? It was bad. And just to be clear, like, I think we yes, all knew we it was bad. I think we saw it coming. The, the, the way it's corrected, it's hard to predict how a correction will happen. Sometimes you have a sense it's going to happen. We had a conversation with a notable public markets investor back in May last year who was like, well, what do you think? We've been involved in some of the, the pipes and whatnot. And I, I think, I remember when we were talking, like the tone changed because I was like, I think there's going to be a lot of companies that are delisted because it's garbage. And it was awkward to say that so bluntly, and I think <laughs> should have packaged it a bit better, but... Yeah, I think we feel similarly about Web 3.0. Let's not get into that. It's not just SPACs, though. Like, even companies that I think had been public for a while and have been, like, darlings in the stock market in our space mobility have been just crushed. Like, Carvana was a $50 billion company. And I remember we were sitting around looking at different opportunities and we were saying, okay, if we're going to invest in an electric vehicle company, or we're going to invest in a battery company, or we're going to invest in yet another auto retail company that might not really be changing the world that much. But hey, look, if you go public, these companies that can grow quickly can get incredible multiples. Like, it definitely was a factor in our thinking. And it's crazy now to see that, okay, well, maybe there was really nothing there. It was just part of the general overhyped trend of, of tech. But of course, now Carbon is down like almost 90%, I think. And Vroom is down more than 90%. And Kazoo is, is also in a really similar bucket. It's just interesting to see how some of the most high flying 
tech stocks in our space have just completely, I would call it maybe normalized or rationalized. I think there's also like a real world correction that people expected that COVID habits were here to stay. And I think American consumers in other places too have basically said, nah, we want to go back to life before COVID. A lot of stocks really shot up at the start of COVID when it was like, oh, there's a step change. We've got 10 years of change in six months and it's really hard to get adoption of all these different services. People are never going to go to the gym again. They're going to ride a Peloton. People are never going to go to the restaurant again. They're just going to order through DoorDash. And they're never going to go to the dealership again. They're just going to buy cars on Carvana. And I think there's obviously been a shift, but I, don't, I think there's a sense now that those shifts aren't as deep and as permanent. And because a lot of tech stocks, and this is an important note about tech stocks, if you're a recurring revenue business and your projections forward-looking go down, those are compounded way into the future. So your valuation goes down significantly because the expectation is you will be making much less money into the future than you expected to. So speaking of companies that are or aren't doing well right now, Prescott, do you want to say a little bit about Uber and, and what's happening there versus Lyft? Or? Yeah, we had to take a look at just how the companies diverged. Basically, Uber Basically, there's Lyft. a lot of Uber haters in the world, and we're not... We're here to correct them. We're here to correct them. So Uber and Lyft had earnings that were supposed to come out about the same time. Lyft came out, I think, two days earlier, and it was so bad their stock tanked like 30% in a few hours, and it started dragging Uber down and DoorDash down. And basically, Uber had to rush and accelerate its earnings announcements just to be like, hold on, guys, we're not Lyft. Stop selling our stock. We're going to be fine. It definitely righted the ship, so to speak. And while Lyft has just been in the gutter, Uber has at least managed to turn its decline around after the, the Lyft earnings call. The, the funny thing is Lyft reported a loss of $200 million, and Uber, which is about 10 times bigger, as a company, reported a loss of $6 billion, which is actually way more than 10 times bigger. So I guess a lot of people were like, Uber has lost so much money, why isn't it hit as hard as Lyft? And of course, the haters come out and the, oh, Uber's, it's a racket, it's a pyramid scheme, the Saudis dumped, you know, pumped and dumped it on U.S. retail investors. And we're here to actually say, no, we don't think that's the case. So... Firstly, what's up with that $6 billion loss? Like, what's going on there? Okay, so that $6 billion number is always what people get confused about Uber. In fact, Uber has basically been reaching operational profitability for a while. Ever since Dara has come in, his focus has been on adjusted EBITDA. Except during 2020 and onwards, where it didn't get very much closer, right? Yeah, and 2020 was a disaster, obviously, for Right Hail. But heading into 2020 and coming out of 2020, Uber has been hammering this mantra break even for operational business. And they I mean, it's like not super clear, right, what they're saying. And I think this is where a lot of the suspicion comes in, where you've got right-hailed companies saying we're going to reach what, like, operational profitability, all sorts of words that don't actually have... Adjusted EBITDA, but what the heck are the adjustments? <laughs> the adjustments are taking it from zero to something positive, negative to positive. And, and the really crazy thing is, like, this quarter... Dara says, we were operationally profitable, but the headline on CNBC says $6 billion of loss. So everyone just starts to feel like, are they just flat out lying? So anyway, we wanted to so give that a loss. little context. Where, yeah. Where's that loss coming so from? The loss is not from their business. When Uber is operationally profitable, that means when you take a ride, they make more money than they have spent that quarter. And that's actually the really important thing about Uber. It's break-even or profitable or close to in, in that business. But Uber owns all these separate 
stakes in companies like Didi, which is like the Uber of China, or Grab, Grab in Southeast Asia, it, yeah, or um, Aurora, the self-driving uh, car company, and they've been hammered for various reasons. Yeah, right? Didi got delisted because of the whole Chinese tech crackdown. Yeah, and, and Shanghai lockdowns and what's happening in China right now, I think, is really hurting their business too. So Uber's losses are like it's. 95% of that $6 billion loss was the fact their stock portfolio in other companies went down. Ooh, but they that, marked it down. They marked it down, yeah. yeah. That doesn't change the fact that the business is actually fine. Like the ride hail business, the delivery business, and Uber Freight are all growing super fast and reaching or already have reached uh, profitability on an, what they call an adjusted basis. But basically that last part, which is the adjusted basis, that's still generating confusion. And given the fact that there's been this tech backlash and people are selling stocks like crazy. People are looking for companies that are not just adjusted profitable. They're looking for companies that can actually that like, make money. Yeah, like literally print me money and give me a dividend. Because right now, as things look downwards, things that matter are money, cash in the bank, profitability. Like those are the things that matter to investors. And so the Lyft stock was hit so hard, not because they had a $200 million loss, but because basically they didn't have the delivery business and that meant their drivers all went away and they're basically telling investors, hey, we're gonna actually have to keep paying drivers extra incentives to come back for the foreseeable future. But, but doesn't that like also apply to Uber? Don't they have to pay incentives to their drivers? No, so that's the big difference between the two companies. Uber basically said that our flywheel, the marketplace network effect that we have is very effective. We're not going to have to continue subsidizing rides and giving bonuses to drivers nearly as aggressively as we had in the past because the marketplace is just a highly liquid, lots of activity, people are, are making a lot of money. And we actually pointed out Harry, the rideshare guy, was saying, yeah, anecdotally in Los Angeles, drivers that are on Uber are just getting way more jobs than they're getting on Lyft. And I think it's a two-sided marketplace. So the, the key difference between Uber and Lyft that's important to understand is Lyft does rides and Uber does rides and food delivery. And those two businesses have been very complementary in the downturn. So when COVID hit, people stopped taking rides, but they started ordering food a lot more. It actually made up for a lot of the loss in rides in Uber's business and its bottom line. But for drivers, that's also important. If you're driving for Uber and you're making your money that way, and suddenly the pandemic hits, and you're riding for Lyft, then you don't have a job. If you're riding for Uber, you just have a different job. And so when things shift back to rides again, you're still riding for Uber and you don't have to be paid as much to switch over to rides because you're already on their platform. And I think that's a key differentiator. And not only that, but like Uber's big growth factor in the US is this whole Uber freight. Like I have to ship a big thing, match me with a truck driver. Like, and Lyft is not even exposed to that area at all. And that I think will be a highly profitable marketplace in the near future as well. So long story short, Lyft is saying, we have these losses. They're way smaller than Uber's apparent losses, but they're going to continue to be lossy. And Uber's basically saying we're turning a profit soon and we're going to generate free cash flow. And we're kind of bullish about that. Yeah, we're bullish about that. Next part, passenger EV as a theme. We it's see this race. all the time. Yeah, it's yeah. a race. We call it the race. It feels like a race. It's gotten faster and faster. But yeah, the obvious leader of the race is Tesla. And it's funny because a few years ago, car companies kind of, poo-pooed Tesla were like, oh, there's no way that company's going to scale. They're going to be able to do build quality, etc. Obviously, tables have turned. We're living in a different reality. Lots of reasons why. I had a really interesting discussion on our podcast this week with Philippe Hochois from Jefferies about the early days of Tesla scale-up during what was called manufacturing hell. So check that out. Pretty interesting to listen to. But yeah, Tesla's in a very dominant position uh, in the market and everyone else is playing catch-up. 
So we had a few interesting stories like on this trend. One was we call it production pressure. So background here, there's been a global chip shortage, silicon shortage. There's a lot to say about this. I think we'll skip over the global silicon shortage, but it's very important kind of squeezer on supply. Then there's been the war in Ukraine. And then there's also crazy lockdowns in Shanghai, China, and, and elsewhere in China, at least the threat of it, and, and in some cases, restrictive measures. That means that the supply chain for making cars is somewhat limited. And so companies like VW that are trying to scale up manufacturing are actually being hit by that. So VW claims they've got 300,000 orders for their ID3 electric vehicle, which is like a key competitor to Tesla's Model 3. The reality is they've only been able to produce less than 100,000 of them and sell those to consumers in, in Q1. Just for context, that's less than a, th a third of what Tesla shipped that quarter, which was more than 300,000. It's funny how like Tesla started out being the company that nobody believed could actually make cars and get them on the road. And now it's no, VW is the one that can't. Yeah. So yeah, I think there's production pressure. We're seeing businesses like Ford and GM trying to position themselves to make cheaper cars. So something, again, that came up in the discussion with Philippe, Tesla's fundamental advantage is it can make cheaper EVs. They don't necessarily come out so cheap to consumers, but the difference is that Tesla's making a larger margin, which means they can either discount the vehicles or they can put more money back into their business and to scaling. So Ford is trying to squeeze out costs. Okay, Ford and GM are talking about ways to reduce the cost of manufacturing the vehicles. So GM's doing one thing, which is quite interesting. It's partnering with Honda and has been doing so for a little while on its Altium platform. So the Altium platform is their electric vehicle platform. That's like the thing that cars get built on top of and it's the expensive part of cars. So scaling that through alliances like with Honda is a way to reduce costs. Ford is doing something slightly different which is it's separating out its electric vehicle business from its core business. Now, they're both still under Ford, but it means that there are separate executives um, that are being given operational responsibility within the organization to make these electric vehicles. It gives the option to Ford to spin its electric business vehicle business and get outside investment and also untether it from the mothership, which might, might be slowing it down. But for now, the mothership is where a lot of the capital for investment is coming from. And I think it's both the partnerships game and the restructuring games are things we've seen a lot in the industry. And it's entirely about how do you get access to more capital because it's so expensive to develop these platforms. When you do partnership, it's like neither company can necessarily invest the amount required itself. So they partner. And the restructuring is entirely about, hey, our legacy business might not be favored by investors. So instead of drowning our future business in this like mired storytelling, let's just take the future business and just take it out and have it be its own thing and grow fast and raise money on its own story. And we've seen that with Aptiv and Delphi. Yeah, I was going to say that's like a great example <clears throat> where Delphi used to be one company. It was split out into Delphi Technologies, which was the powertrain company and Aptiv which is mostly a wire harness company, but was doing all sorts of other tech and doing acquisitions, was spun out and, and told a really compelling to the markets and has been very successful. So generally, the view is that if you spin out businesses that are at least distinct enough, that generates value for shareholders. We got one last section, and this is more like a teaser section so that you keep coming back. Fleetification. Okay, so fleetification is a big topic that we focus on because... The big area we're excited about is the fact that people are doing more of their driving without driving. What we mean is 
I don't drive my car around to get places. I order food. I order e-commerce. I take a ride hail. I take a bus or I take a train. Basically, I'm using a service as opposed to driving myself. And that means those vehicles are not owned by me. They're owned by a fleet, ideally. And fleets tend to be quite rational in how they purchase vehicles. They purchase them on bulk. They tend to focus on efficiencies, total cost of ownership. And that has many impacts, one of which that's very interesting to watch is the acceleration of electric vehicle uptake. And also those electric vehicles are the ones that are doing the most miles. So we highlighted a few stories in this theme. They happen to be electric vehicle focused fleet stories. Yeah, I feel like this is a drum we've been beating for a long time. This is why Uber is going to accelerate or the ride economy will accelerate electrification. But now it's happening in a big way that's making headlines like Hertz is becoming one of the biggest buyers of EVs in the world. And it makes sense because their cars just have more utilization than a car that you own yourself. Hopefully you found that discussion informative and helpful. Thank you so much for listening. You can check out more information at our newsletter website at news.red.blue. Also on that website, you can find the latest version of our podcast, the Automotive Analyst series, and reach out to us with responses on Twitter. At the bottom of every week's newsletter online at news.red.blue, you can find a database of dozens of industry headlines. Uh, You can actually click through to read some of them. It's a resource that we're trying to make available to the ecosystem. If you have any feedback or ideas for how we can improve that or the newsletter or our podcasts, don't hesitate to reach out to us. Again, news.red.blue, you can find everything there. Thank you.